0: This is the Martin Luther Sermon Podcast, and you're listening to Martin Luther's Sermon for Cantata, the fourth Sunday after Easter, preached on John chapter 16, verses 5 to 15. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more information on the Luther Sermon Podcast or to hear other Luther sermons, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. This sermon is from Luther's House Postal. I'm reading from a translation published by J.A. Schulze, publisher in Columbus, Ohio, in 1884, a text that is in the public domain. First, the Gospel reading, John 16, 5-15. Jesus said, But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall bear here, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. Here ends the reading. Luther's Sermon This is a delightful gospel. It treats especially of that chief and all-important article of our faith from which we have our name, Christians. Therefore, we cannot sufficiently learn this lesson, though we hear it once a year. If it is to produce in our hearts a faith that is firm and fruitful, we must hear it often and practice it diligently. This gospel, like the one of last Sunday, is filled with words of consolation which the Lord addressed to his disciples at the table on that memorable evening before he was betrayed and made a captive. Now, he is desired above all, "...to prepare his disciples for the coming tribulation, so that they might not be offended at his pitiable, disgraceful death, but might know what great blessings would result therefrom, and that thus they might be comforted. Therefore, as they were cheered in the gospel of one week ago with the declaration that their sorrows and tribulations would be but for a little while, after which eternal happiness should come so they are strengthened in the text of today by the explanation of the necessity and importance of the death of their Lord and Master. He says, But now I go my way to him that sent me. That is, tomorrow I shall be crucified and put to death. And yet no one among you asks me whither I go or why this takes place, but because I told you of it, your hearts are filled with sadness. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, It is expedient for you that I go away. It is done for your welfare. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you, and the power of darkness will retain its sway. But if I depart, I will send the Holy Ghost unto you. Christ wants us to learn and to know this, in order that his sufferings may neither offend nor frighten us, but may be unto us a source of consolation, since we know that by them the influence and tyranny of the devil was broken. And the Holy Spirit was given and imparted unto us. The Lord explains still further what the Holy Ghost would accomplish, what he would bring and teach us. He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, indeed a great task so vast that its execution seems impossible. Not merely one school or one village or one city or even several of them, but the whole world shall come under the influence and reproof of the Holy Spirit. It must in truth be a mighty power which can accomplish such a task, and it must be sure of the necessary support. To the world belong all the descendants of Adam, emperors, kings, and princes. All these are included among the number of those whom the Holy Ghost, through the preaching of the apostles and other ministers, is to reprove and admonish. He tells them, Ye are all sinners. Not one of you is just or wise, whether you live in Jerusalem or in Rome, whether you are of high or low degree. You must all learn true wisdom of me, or not one of you will be saved. If you despise my teaching, you shall go all to hell, just as you are, with your entire baggage of self-righteousness, of holiness and good works. Thus says Christ to his disciples, will the Holy Spirit execute his office of reproving the whole world through you the poor and despised preachers of the gospel. This reproof, however, is no idle sound, but dread reality. Christ says, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What now? If there is in the world no righteousness, no judgment, nothing but sin, what shall become of us? Hence the reproof of the Holy Ghost is for the world a terrible shock. We hear that we are the devil's own with all our good works and that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless the Holy Ghost removes our sins, makes us righteous, and frees us from judgment. Many passages in the scripture are of similar import. Thus, St. Paul says, God has concluded all under sin. And again, we were by nature children of wrath. Christ also says, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. With such words and declarations, the Holy Ghost reproves the world of sin. What is sin? Is it to steal, to murder, to commit adultery, and the like? Yea, these are indeed sins, but they are not those which are most prevalent and most grave. Many persons are not guilty of these manifest sins, but of that chief sin, of which the Holy Ghost reproves the world. No one is free else the Holy Ghost could not reprove the whole world. This great sin is the unbelief of the world, the refusal to believe in Jesus Christ. Nor does the world know anything of this sin before the Holy Ghost reproves the people of it through his teachings. The world considers only such deeds sinful as are contrary to the second table of the law. It knows nothing of Christ, and much less is it aware of the sin of not believing in him, But we need not talk of the world in this regard. We find among the Christians those who do not consider unbelief a sin, much less an original sin. No one but the Holy Ghost can teach the world that unbelief is sin. He reproves all as sinners, no matter how some may attempt to cover up their faults by good works or to pass themselves off as pure under the tensile of self-righteousness. The Holy Ghost, therefore, preaches this truth. That all men, without an exception, are sinners, and cannot of themselves believe in Christ. This is, of course, a strange preaching for the world. The world itself is perfectly ignorant of the duty of having faith in Christ, the Son of Man. Men suppose that they have fulfilled their duty if they can say, with the Pharisee, Luke 18, that they are no murderers, no adulterers, and no unjust persons. But the Holy Ghost teaches otherwise and tells man, I know that this one or that that one may lead an outwardly upright life, but still, the great sin of unbelief nestles deep down in the heart of everyone. If we are not reproved of this sin by the Holy Ghost, we will never discover it. We must, then, infer from this that everything not concluded in faith is sin, whether it be monastic vows or prayers, fasting, and giving of alms, Wherever faith in Christ is wanting, there the Holy Ghost must come with his reproof. There is no other way to be relieved from this sin but to believe in Jesus Christ the Savior. This is an overwhelming truth. And yet the Pope, with his followers, attempt to gainsay it. When they cannot remove the text itself, they say that it speaks de fide formata de caritatem, that is, of faith as formed by love. But this is a false interpretation of the text. Christ evidently speaks here of the great sin of unbelief in Him. Therefore, though there are ever so many works of love performed by man, if faith in Christ is wanting, they will avail nothing, and he who performs them is nevertheless a sinner whom the Holy Ghost reproves on account of his sins. Unbelief is, therefore, the principal sin, from which all transgressions take their origin. Wherever unbelief dwells, their faith in Christ is banished, and the result is that his word is rejected. It is either treated with contempt or regarded as heresy and falsehood and therefore persecuted as if it were the word of the devil. From this, other great evils spring. Disobedience towards parents and those in authority, neglect of the fulfillment of the duties of one's office and calling, indulgence in all kinds of lasciviousness and lawlessness, although a few, perhaps, may lead an unblameable life before men from fear of detection and of scandal. Such are the blossoms and fruits of this tree of unbelief. Its growth is immense and cannot be checked except by the power of the Holy Ghost. Whosoever does not believe in Christ has not the Holy Ghost and cannot have a single good thought. And if, perchance, he performs some work not evil in itself and proper, He does this in slavish fear and not from true earnest obedience to God's word. The world is consequently the devil's household, devoid of everything good in word and in deed. It cannot be otherwise, since unbelief is the source of all evil. We can therefore very appropriately describe the world as a crowd of men on earth who do not believe in Christ but abuse and despise his word, who internally and externally, with thoughts, words, and deeds, kill, steal, rob, and practice all manner of wickedness, often abusing for this purpose the blessings and merciful gifts of God. Christ, in our text, instructs his apostles and all ministers of his word to battle against such iniquity, powerfully to reprove the world of sin by telling it unceasingly as long as time lasts that it has no part in the kingdom of Christ because it does not believe in him, but is assuredly the devil's property, not so much on account of outward gross sins as on account of the source of all sin, unbelief. We cannot remedy this by becoming monks nor by many good works, for as long as unbelief remains in our hearts, we are accursed sinners beyond all hope of redemption. The only remedy in this, our desperate condition, is to thrust aside our unbelief, to have faith in Christ and in Him alone to find consolation against sin and death. You have often heard, my beloved, what is meant by faith. It is not simply a knowledge of Christ, nor a mere assent to the truth of his word, but an earnest confidence in our hearts that what he did for the world was done actually for us, for our salvation. The devil knows well enough that Christ died, and his belief in this regard is as strong as that of the papists, but he does not believe that this death occurred for him also and for his benefit. The Holy Ghost alone has the power to produce in the heart the confidence in Christ which accepts him as Savior. Whosoever has not this faith, nor believes that Christ died for him to save him from sin and eternal death, is not a Christian and remains a sinner, even if he tortures himself to death with his so-called good works. When thus the Holy Ghost reproves the world of sin, he makes it manifest that everything in us is sin. And that we, with all our good works and saintly life, are, after all, in the sight of God, naught but miserable, accursed sinners, if we do not believe in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, away with all hoods, tonsures, orders, and all similar human instrumentalities devised to obtain forgiveness of sins, it is a contradiction to say that Christ died for us, and at the same time to wear a cowl, or to perform this or that wor- work for the purpose of becoming pious and entering heaven. He who does not heed the reproof of the Holy Ghost and does not accept Christ evidently demonstrates thereby that he does not regard himself as a sinner and that he has no faith in the Lord. Again, it is the office of the Comforter to reprove the world of righteousness. This is also a hard saying. Sin the world has, that we know, but piety and righteousness it has none, nor does it know where or how to obtain them. What then is meant by the term righteousness? The world has indeed laws and tribunals of justice. Even the old heathens had appropriate legislation and institutions in regard to civil duties and the execution of their laws. Surely it cannot be wrong to inflict punishment upon thieves and murderers. Is not all this very just and proper? Christ answers thus, Call the regulations of this life as you will, only call them not righteousness. Which would be false, for here is not meant the righteousness of the jurists, but that indicated in the words, Because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. This is an intricate expression, more difficult to be understood than the one in regard to our being sinners because we do not believe in Christ, and surely this is difficult enough for our natural mind to comprehend. We suppose that we have within us natural powers which enable us to worship properly, to prepare ourselves for the reception of pardon, and to pray for it aright. Such supposition makes it even now impossible for the papist to understand this declaration concerning faith in Christ. But still more incomprehensible is the expression concerning righteousness. It declares that we are then pleasing in the sight of God when Christ goeth to the Father, and we see him no more. And yet this statement is beautiful and forcible. Why should we then laud or mention our works? Christ distinctly says in our text that we cannot become righteous by virtue of our own exertions, but only because he went to the Father. Here we find true righteousness. The world knows nothing of it, since the writings of men do not at all allude to it, We are taught by the wisdom of this world that if we keep the Ten Commandments, observe the laws of the land, and lead an honest, upright life, we are surely good, just, and honorable people. In our text, however, we find nothing of all this, nothing of our own works. Christ speaks alone of what he does, of his work, that he goes to the Father, and we see him no more. This deed of Christ, and nothing else, is our righteousness? If, then, we desire to be truly pious, we must not rely on our works. It avails nothing if we become monks and fast and watch and pray, but this avails everything that we desire to be freed from our sins and know and believe that Christ went to the Father in our behalf. How is it, then, with fasting, with prayers, and good works? Are they of no value at all? Good works are right and proper. We ought not to neglect them inasmuch as God ordered them in the law but they can never justify us or make us pleasing in the sight of God. Christ's going to the Father is the one and only cause of our redemption and justification, and we must look for no other. This going of Christ to the Father includes his suffering and cruel death upon the cross, his ascension into heaven, and his sitting at the right hand of God. We do not see this, but we believe it. And this precious fact makes us just. We have no righteousness in ourselves, but Christ becomes our righteousness because he goes to the Father, or in plain language, No one becomes righteous, blessed, or free from sin, but through the suffering and death and resurrection of Christ. Such force has the going of Christ to the Father. Hence, it is plain that the papists teach falsely when they say that good works are necessary to salvation. It is right enough to demand of a Christian an upright life and good works. But to say that thereby we are justified and made righteous is a pernicious falsehood. Our text says distinctly that the going of Christ unto the Father brings true righteousness. The world knows nothing of this. The Holy Ghost alone teaches it. When the papists quote the expression of Christ, If thou wouldst enter into eternal life, keep the commandments, they misapprehend its meaning, and only prove that they do not understand what it means to keep the commandments of God. It is an indisputable fact that righteousness and eternal life were established by the departure of Christ from this world unto the Father, and they come from no other source. Nor shall the devil rob us of this conviction. He may perchance cause us fear and disquietude of conscience on account of our natural weakness and sinfulness, but he cannot deprive us of our hope and faith in Christ who went the way of perfect obedience to the Father, so that we might have righteousness in him, this assurance cannot be overthrown by the devil; He may indeed hold up to hold up to us our sins, but all his accusations will avail not if we have in true faith Christ as our Saviour. Let this ever be our chief consolation, but faith here is absolutely necessary; the great work of Christ is perfect and it devolves upon us to apply it to ourselves by faith. If we believe, we have the benefits of this work. If we are unbelieving, it avails us nothing. Once for all, our righteousness, if true, comes to us from without, from Christ and His meritorious death. This truth makes the heart firm. Otherwise, if we had to depend upon our own merits and works, upon our penitence and penance, as the papists teach, we would never be secure and would have to live in constant dread of punishment. How indeed could we know when our repentance, our confessions, and the penitential tasks are sufficient? Therefore Christ took from us the burden of this suffering and bore it upon his own shoulders so that we can now implicitly depend upon it that his suffering and death are our righteousness. The Son of God performs the work ordained of the Father unto our redemption from sin and death. He is the Lamb of God, as St. John speaks of Him. He is God Almighty, and therefore there is no room to doubt the efficiency of His work of salvation. Thus we learn, my beloved, how preemptorily this text cuts off all hope and meriting righteousness by our own achievements, since it consists entirely in the going of Christ unto the Father. When once this righteousness is ours by faith, let us then endeavor as much as possible to do good works, and let us strive with all our might to be obedient to God. But we will never be enabled to do even one good work if we have no true faith in Christ in our hearts, and if we lack confidence in his merits. For then our hearts are yet wicked and impure, and we have no forgiveness of sins because we have no faith. The righteousness of the Christian is therefore a peculiar one, and not understood of men, unless it is taught and revealed by the Holy Ghost. And even when thus revealed, it cannot be comprehended by our reason, but must be embraced by faith. When Christ says, I go to my Father, and ye see me no more, he requires faith, else his words would have no meaning. The Christian's righteousness must be taught by the Holy Ghost, the righteousness of the world, however, can be exhibited by philosophers, by the secular government, by lawyers, by father and mother, and by all in authority. The Christian learns that everything without faith is evil, while the true eternal righteousness is, found, is founded upon the departure of Christ to the Father, where we see him not, but still have him through faith as our Lord and Savior. Finally, our text tells us, that the Holy Ghost will reprove the world of judgment. Christ explains fully what judgment is meant in this connection when he further states that the prince of this world is judged. As the Holy Ghost reproves the world of sin because it does not believe in Christ and of righteousness because it will not accept the comfortable fact that Christ went unto the Father, so also he reproves it of judgment because of its ignorance and fear in this regard, which is all its own fault since it will neither accept nor faithfully heed the gospel of Christ. It is indeed a most distressing calamity to have sin and no righteousness, to be without consolation amid sin, death, and every kind of misfortune. To this fearful calamity Christ refers when he declares that it shall be the office of the Holy Spirit to preach concerning judgment and to make known to all men the fact that the prince of this world is judged And has no longer the power to harm them who believe in Christ and depend on his going to the Father. The Prince of the world, for such he still is, may indeed here and there attack with his temptations and snares the believers, but he shall not prevail against them. He is judged. His stronghold and his panoply are wrenched from him, and he himself is bound, as St. Peter says, in the chains of darkness." Christ accomplished this overthrow. Therefore, Christians need no longer tremble before this prince and his power in the world. He is judged and has lost his authority. The unbelievers are not aware of this. Sometimes they may make a start to become Christians and to believe, but if the world, on that account, begins to frown on them, they are frightened and fall away, as Christ explains in the parable of the seed upon the rock. With the Christians, it is different. They hold fast in faith to the gospel and heed intently the admonition of the Holy Ghost not to fear nor to despair in the agony and woe of sin because the prince of this world is judged and is deprived of his supremacy. Another and mightier Lord is now in power, even Christ who vanquished and chained the prince of this world. Be therefore not disturbed nor frightened if this dethroned potentate and god of the world scowls gnashes his teeth and champs and threatens like a fiend, he is as impotent in his rage as a dog that furiously barks and dashes his chain to the right and to the left, eagerly intent to thrust his fangs into the limbs of the passerby who easily avoids the rush by stepping to one side of the mad but fettered beast. Just so the devil barks and rages against the Christians, but he is chained and cannot injure them if they have faith in Christ and are constant in prayer. But if we forget this and become careless, we are in danger of injury or at least of great consternation by this hellhound who, though in change and unable to bite, can yet greatly terrify those who heedlessly approach him. For cross dogs do not always bark, but are quiet at times with evil intent. They who have the office to preach the word and in the name of the Holy Ghost to reprove the world of sin and righteousness, ought to cling firmly to this assurance that the prince of this world is judged. The world cannot at all endure to be reproved of sins. People become enraged when told that they are sinners devoid of righteousness. If then we come with our reproof, as it is our duty, the world begins to rage and howl in a perfect fit of frenzy. Were it not for the testimony of the Holy Ghost concerning the judgment of the prince of this world... We preachers would often be frightened by such manifestations of the devil and would hold our peace. The term paracletus, which means a comforter, a helper, belongs therefore of right to the Holy Ghost. He cheers the hearts and tribulations and danger and makes them strong to hear and heed the fact that the prince of the world is judged. This then we consider to be the office of the Holy Ghost on earth and the import of his preaching and instruction. Nor is there any doubt that he who refuses to accept this preaching and instruction as the best and most valuable treasure on earth, and would not give up his own life rather than to lose this boon, is no Christian. Life and property are temporal gifts, but this treasure is everlasting. It conveys to us eternal life. St. Paul says, The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. We ought therefore greatly to rejoice at the going of Christ to the Father, of which he speaks in the text, and give thanks unto God continually with the earnest prayer that he may mercifully retain in us this knowledge and increase it day by day, so that we may be freed from sin and be made partakers of eternal righteousness, and finally, that we may be comforted in the assurance that the Prince of this world is judged. After having concluded his statement in regard to the office of the Comforter, Christ continues, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. You are aware, my hearers, how the papists pervert this expression when they pretend to prove by it their innovations and institutions, saying that the Holy Ghost was their author and that Christ in this passage prophesied of such a work. This is all a most glaring falsehood. On the contrary, Christ would say in this passage, You, my disciples, have now heard of the office and functions of the Holy Ghost. Concerning this, I have yet much to say to you, but you are unable to comprehend it now. You must learn it by experience. For the Holy Spirit will also guide you into all truth and protect you from false and damnable doctrine. Without such guidance of the Holy Spirit, it easily happens that we depart from the truth, that we neglect the Word and suddenly fall into grievous error. Arius picked out one or two passages and made them the basis of his heresy, while he, on the other hand, disregarded the many plain and convincing testimonies concerning Christ. The Anabaptists take as proof for their doctrine the command of Christ, go, teach, and baptize all nations. They say that if instruction should precede baptism, as this passage implies, then, of course, infant baptism is wrong, for it does not admit of instruction preceding baptism. It is, however, evident that the command to teach prior to baptism has reference only to adults. A similar perversion of the text occurred in regard to the Lord's Supper. The plain words of Christ were set aside, while certain confused and dubious expressions of the fathers were highly esteemed as decisive. Surely error is speedily upon us if the Holy Ghost does not guide us into all truth. Christ also says, The Comforter will show you things to come. This prophesying is another function of the Holy Spirit and we have many examples of of its application in the Acts of the Apostles. But the Holy Ghost shall also glorify me, continues Christ. With this declaration the Lord assures the disciples and all believers that their hearts shall be filled with a knowledge of God whereby they will be strengthened and undergo all sufferings and joyfully to be brave in every danger for his sake. For such is the work of the Holy Ghost, which indeed cannot be fully understood if experience and faith is wanting. Christ therefore tells the disciples that for the present it suffices to them to be encouraged in tribulation and to rejoice at his going to the Father, for then would come the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to reprove the world of sin, to bring true righteousness and assurance of eternal life. These lessons we learn from the gospel for this Sunday. May God our Father, through Christ Jesus, send the Holy Spirit into our hearts, there to begin and complete the work of salvation. Amen. This has been Dr. Martin Luther's sermon on Cantata, the fourth Sunday after Easter, on the text John 16, verses 5 to 15. You're listening to the Luther Sermon Podcast. For more Luther sermons, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.com dot o-r-g.